right, I'm going to have uh, some assistance from Denton today who's going to be running the slide. So if it's a little bit out of sync, uh, then use your imagination to fill in the gaps. We'll all get there. Today, uh, in the Revised Common Lectionary, this Sunday marks the final Sunday of the Christian liturgical calendar, which is something I did not know before I started preparing this. Uh, this Sunday is the end of what we call Ordinary Time, which is essentially the final liturgical season after Advent, Epiphany, and Easter. Next Sunday, on the Christian calendar, we enter into a new liturgical year with the first Sunday of Advent. So today's lectionary focus is Christ the King, or Reign of Christ. This title comes to us from a Catholic feast entitled The Solemnity of Our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe, established by Pope Pius XI in December 1925. Uh, The kingship of Christ is a central theme throughout the New Testament and throughout the history of the church, so I was really curious to learn what had merited the establishment of this new feast less than 100 years ago. And in that vein, I want to share some of the historical precedents for this observation of Christ the King or the reign of Christ and highlight related themes in our lectionary readings. So in 1922, uh, Ambrosio Damiano Achille Ratti was elected Pope Pius XI, and he would lead the Catholic Church from 1922 until his death in 1939, mere months before the onset of World War II. For his papal motto, he chose Pax Christi and Regno Christi, which means the peace of Christ in the kingdom of Christ. His first encyclical, published 23rd December 1922, is titled Ubi Arcano Dei Concilio, which means when in the inscrutable designs of God, and it's subtitled again uh, on the peace of Christ in the kingdom of Christ. So looking over the ruins of Europe in the immediate wake of World War I, uh, Pope Pius XI saw the seeds of future conflicts. He wrote, since the close of the Great War, conditions have become increasingly worse because the fears of the people are being constantly preyed upon by the ever-present menace of new wars likely to be more frightful and destructive than any which have preceded them. The nations of today live in a state of armed peace, which is scarcely better than war itself. And we know the Great War today is World War I, but at the time it was considered the war to end all wars. It had been unprecedented in scale, mobilizing more than 70 million fighters and deploying unimaginable horrors of technology that altered the moral fabric of a generation. It also marked the end of multiple empires, the fall of the Ottoman Caliphate after 500 years, the final humiliation of the Habsburg monarchs who had ruled over Europe in various capacities for over a millennia, the destruction of the Romanov dynasty after 300 years of Russian rule, and in the power vacuum that resulted, communities across Europe and Asia uh, were struggling to define these new ideological identities. The Western world in particular was witnessing a rising wave of violent ethno-nationalism. And the word end all war comes from H.G. Wells, something I also didn't know before I uh, started this sermon preparation. So responding to this, Pius wrote, uh, patriotism becomes merely an occasion, an added incentive to grave injustice when true love of country is debased to the condition of an extreme nationalism. When we forget that all men are our brothers and members of the same great human family, that other nations have an equal right with us both to life and to prosperity. 
So that was in 1922, shortly after Pope Pius was elected. On December 11th, 1925, he returned to these themes in his encyclical Quas Primus, which means in the first, in which he established the Feast of Christ the King, which we celebrate today. By this time, the World War I slogan of the war to end all wars is starting to seem like a cruel joke. Across the Abrahamic world, charismatic authoritarian leaders are violently establishing new ideological and political borders. Here are some of the events that took place in the short time between these papal letters. All right. So Lenin steps down as chair of the Soviet Party. It triggers a violent internal struggle among his potential successors, chiefly Stalin and Trotsky, who uh, will result in eventually millions of deaths. The Ottoman Empire ends with the Treaty of Lausanne. The British mandate for Palestine comes into effect. Across Germany, Nazi party members and their fascist allies conduct multiple coups. Adolf Hitler is one of the most notorious individuals arrested for this. Uh, he is arrested for a five-year term, of which he'll serve only nine months. The Weimar Republic's coalition government collapses and its economy shortly after. The Islamic Caliphate collapses. The USA adopts the Immigration Act of 1924, which banned all immigration from Asia, all of it, and reduced all other immigration by 80%, with the explicit purpose, according to the State Department at the time, of maintaining the homogeneity of the United States. And this law had disastrous consequences about 15 years later for Jewish refugees across Europe. Uh, those, those restrictions were not repealed until after World War II. Meanwhile, fascists are dominating the Italian elections. They're carrying out high-profile assassinations of opposition leaders. The USSR violently suppresses uprisings throughout its republics and neighbors. Then Adolf Hitler's release from prison. He publishes the first volume of his memoir, Mein Kampf, which he wrote while he was in prison. He establishes a paramilitary unit as his own personal guard, which we know today as the SS. Mussolini declares Italy a fascist dictatorship. He suspends free elections. He establishes a police state. Uh, Reza Shah deposes the last Qajari monarch in Persia, ending again uh, hundreds of years of a single Monarchy, he establishes a secular modern dictatorship that sowed the seeds for the Islamic Revolution, uh, the Iranian Revolution in the 1970s. Meanwhile, in the U.S., the KKK reaches peak membership. They march on Washington, D.C. with 30 to 35,000 members and secure major political and policy victories in California, Indiana, Texas, and Alabama. So in, in light of all of this, uh, the Feast of Christ the King was proposed and established to remind the community of believers of our true nationality and allegiance. In his encyclical, Pius XI identifies secular nationalism as a common danger which sows the seeds of discord far and wide. His letter draws upon two themes that will be familiar to us as Anabaptists. First, the idea that true peace can only come through Christ and the notion that our allegiance to the kingdom of God precedes and supersedes political allegiance to any earthly kingdom. So in Christ, Pope Pius XI argues we see kingship perfected in the same way that in God we see fatherhood perfected. We can use the attributes of Christ's kingdom to understand how those earthly leaders in the time of Pope Pius XI and the apostles and the prophet Jeremiah fell short of Christ's perfection. 
So I put together some parallels, the heavenly kingdom versus earthly imitations and where we fall short, where the heavenly kingdom is characterized in scripture through eternal peace. Earthly kingdoms are established, especially in fascist regimes, through perpetual war, where Christ the Lamb is elevated as the leader in whose dominion this can never be questioned. Earthly kingdoms, especially fascist regimes, are led by charismatic strongmen, uh, the opposite of Christ and his submission. God's kingdom is marked by abundance. There is plenty of provision for everyone. God's promise that no one will hunger or thirst or cry, where earthly kingdoms are defined by scarcity mindsets, the idea that we have to exclude certain people from our borders or uh, set borders around ourselves, develop walls, because there might not be enough for everyone. And this drives empires to pursue new territories, new resources, new wealth. Christ's kingdom says the last shall be first, the meek shall inherit the earth. And in earthly kingdoms, especially fascist regimes, might makes right. They're characterized by contempt for the weak. Right? Jeremiah chapters 22 and 23 also demonstrate this contrast. 23 is in our reading this week, and I was really interested to see the full context of Jeremiah. So in 22, we see a condemnation of uh, Judah's leaders. The Lord declares, Woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, making his own people work for nothing, not paying them for their labor. He says, I will build myself a great palace with spacious upper rooms. So he makes large windows in it, panels it with cedar, and decorates it in red. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just, so all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord. But your eyes and your heart are set only on dishonest gain, on shedding innocent blood, and on oppression and extortion. This comes right before the reading that we heard in uh, Jeremiah chapter 23, which begins by promising woe to the shepherds who scattered God's flock. Like the prophet Jeremiah, Pope Pius XI perceived this scattering. He perceived the citizens of God's kingdom being torn asunder by by allegiances that were challenging. We know today that his concerns about these seeds of discord were rather prescient. Within months of his sudden and untimely death in February 1939, global war erupted again with Nazi Germany's invasion of Poland, and this time it would mobilize over 100 million combatants. In our reading, uh, this is in our lectionary for this week as well. We recited it together. The psalmist describes a time in which the earth should change, the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, the waters roar and foam, the mountains tremble with its tumult, the nations are in an uproar, the kingdoms totter, the earth melts. And reminiscent of Revelations, this poetic description certainly captures the chaos and terror of a world at war. Uh, in addition to the natural disasters, we're seeing the, the undermining of these earthly kingdoms, of kingdoms that the people who were alive at that time uh, thought would last forever. The sun never sets on the British Empire until it does. Scripture repeatedly pairs these descriptions of global cataclysms with promises of God's deliverance. And that's not for those kingdoms, that's for us. Jeremiah says, woe to the shepherds, the political leaders of Israel and Judah, who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. 
And then immediately after that, God promises to rise up a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. So we see the full context of Psalm 46, not just the tumult, not just the disaster, but the God who is our refuge, the God who puts an end to all war, who breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire, the God from whom we can never be separated. So on this Sunday, we're celebrating and declaring our allegiance to Christ the King. Let's reflect on these words from the confession of faith from a Mennonite perspective. First, from Article 20, as Christians, our first allegiance is to God. In baptism, we pledge our loyalty to Christ's community, a commitment that takes precedence over obedience to any other social and political community. And then from Article 23, we understand that Christ, by his death and resurrection, has won victory over all the powers, including all governments. Because we confess that Jesus Christ has been exalted as Lord of Lords, we recognize no other authority's claim as ultimate. That was the promise uh, that, our, that our predecessors, that the saints who came before us, could rely upon in, in the time of Pontius Pilate, in the time of Pope Pius XI, in the time of the apostles in the book of Acts. And it's a promise that we can rely upon today, even when we see kingdoms toppling and mountains tumbling into the sea. I'm going to say a few words of prayer. Lord, you raise your son up, O God, and seated him at your right hand as the shepherd and king who seeks what is lost. Lord, bind up what is wounded in us and strengthens what is weak. Empowered by the Spirit, grant that we may share with others that which we have received from your hand to the honor of Jesus Christ, our Lord, forever and ever. Amen.